0: Welcome to Upstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency.
1: Hey guys, I'm Andy Baldacci and thanks for joining me for episode number 13 of the Agency Advantage Podcast. Today I'm excited to talk to Jake Jorgovin of Outbound Creative. Direct mail is a tactic that we usually associate with fly-by-night spammers and not something that we consider using for our own agency. But Jake tells us how when used right, it can generate huge results. Now, Jake isn't talking about using bright red envelopes that say important action required in all caps or sending a cheesy plastic trash can filled with fake money to somebody and saying stop throwing money away. He's talking about creating highly personalized campaigns that get noticed and get qualified prospects on the phone with you. In today's episode, he shares how he uses these tactics to work with Fortune 500 companies, how he helps other agencies land clients, and how you can do it to grow your own agency. So without further ado, here's Jake. All right,
0: Jake, thanks for coming on the podcast today. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Andy.
1: Yeah, so let's just start with a kind of the cliche opening question. Like, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do?
0: Yeah, so my name is Jake Jorgovan, and I run a company called Outbound Creative, and we help agencies win their dream clients, and we do that through creating – really unique eye-catching outreach campaigns. So, for example, some of the things we've done to help our clients win clients is uh, we've ordered cakes with custom URLs on top that sent the prospect to a personalized pitch video. Um, We've also sent hollowed-out books um, that had like a wax-sealed letter, a scroll, and kind of like a personal message inside of it. So we do really kind of unique eye-catching ways basically to help agencies get in front of really busy decision makers and stand out in this crowded, noisy world where there's so many emails, text messages, and phone calls. We really try to think of ways to rise above that and get decision makers' attentions.
1: Yeah. And so how did you first kind of Sumble upon this. I'm guessing one day you didn't just wake up and say, hey, I'm going to send that guy a really cool looking book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this, uh, this started, I had an agency. Um, it was a video production agency that I cannot mention because of non-competes. But <laughs> uh, I had this for about five years that I ran with a business partner. And um, we designed video production for really large scale stage productions for corporate events. Um, so whenever these big companies have their corporate shareholders meetings, they launch new products, and they get all their people together, they you know, put a lot of money into these stage productions and these live events. And so what we would do is we'd actually create the graphics for those stage productions. And so that was kind of our business. That was the niche that we kind of eventually worked our way into. After getting a handful of clients through just kind of luck, networking, um, just kind of random odds and ends – we started really trying to figure out, okay, what's the way that we're going to get to the biggest deals in this industry and really grow, and uh, somewhere along the line stumble across the idea of a dream client campaign. Um, okay, and that's it's a sort of Chet Holmes style. Yeah, it was sort of Chet Holmes style. Actually, I didn't come across Chet Holmes until I actually was starting outbound creative. But when I had my agency, this was just I – camera. I don't know where I learned it from. Or, the idea of it basically built that list of 30 top event planners that we wanted to work with um, and then you know really researched into all of them and then crafted really personalized, customized, and eye-catching outreach campaigns to each of those. And it worked really well for us. It got us relationships with about three of those event planners, which led to over half a million dollars in revenue the year after we wa- launched this campaign.
1: Wow. So the event planners, because that's basically who your client was, you're not going directly to the people throwing the event, you're going to the ones that are planning it all, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, because they were kind of the aggregators. So one of those event planners could draw, bring us in on several meetings with uh, corporate clients versus going directly. Most of the time, the companies don't directly hire video companies like us, they hire an event planner who then hires us. So that was kind of the, the way the industry worked.
1: Yeah. And just so for listeners, it's They should definitely go check out outboundcreative.com because you have a few examples of sort of the things that you've sent in the past. And it's kind of – you kind of need to see it to really appreciate it because it's like the book you talk about is not just like you sent a book in the mail. It's like a kind of really antique-looking book. It's all written like bundled up with twine. You open it up and then there's like a – you have a letter addressed, I'm guessing, to the decision maker that you're sending it to with like a wax seal and you have a scroll and you have all this really cool stuff. And so the point of it, like you said, is kind of to, to stand out from everyone else that's doing more traditional selling. Is that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's Seth Godin purple cow mentality right here, but taken to the, the selling mindset of it, where you're just, you know, it's just in today's day and age, there's so much noise, so many busy things. Uh, and it's just a matter of trying to do something unique and standing out. Um, and so if there's, if there's nothing that people take away from this episode other than that, is that if you really want to get sales with people, just try to stand out and be unique because it goes such a long way.
1: Right. And I'm guessing that you don't send that book to every single one of your prospects. Is there some kind of personalization that you do with this? Or how do you approach kind of starting one of these campaigns?
0: Yeah. So um, again, with each of the, the clients I work with, we we very much look at what is true to their brand, what makes sense to the audience um, that we're sending it to, the decision makers, and try to craft a campaign that's very fitting and uh, custom to them. For example, we have this one company. We're targeting PR firms, and uh, these guys, they're really fun. They're a really fun organization. They enjoy it. They have a lot of time. Like Fun is in their values. Uh, and they're also based in Colorado, which is a very blue state um and so we basically targeted pr firms uh who we thought you know were kind of people that would be very receptive to this kind of stuff and we're sending donald trump piñatas uh, <laughs> and when they break it open on the inside we basically have or even on the outside we have a little letter that basically takes them to a link where there's that personal video um you know so it, it, again it's like fitting to them there's a lot of companies that would just say hell no to something that crazy Um, But these guys, they're like, okay, the people that respond to this are going to be the kind of people we want to work with.
1: When you think about, like, direct mail seems like super old school. It's like, oh, I'm going to send this sales letter. I'll have a few follow-ups. And, like, that used to work. And, I mean, people still do that with success. And then you have kind of, like, the cheesy, like, 3D mailing where it's like, I'm going to send someone a trash can filled with fake money and say you're throwing all this money away. And, like those things work, but like, I feel like the way you do it, it it takes on more of like a unique feel for your client. And that's like something that they're not kind of embarrassed about. And it's really will like stand out to the prospects as well.
0: Yeah. There's all like the 3d mail. There's people that just do the same things over and over, but it's just a matter of trying to figure out what is trying to put yourself in the head of the prospect and be creative and just think of something that's that they're not going to be able to ignore. Again, the, what we found with the Kate campaigns is like we've been getting response rates of like seven out of nine when we do campaigns like this. So like really good responses because, again, it's just something that when you get something like this, you feel the need to reciprocate. It's so unique, so different, um, and it just people want to respond. So it's just a matter of putting yourself in the head of that person and then really doing something unique um, to stand out.
1: Right, because no one's really just going to throw out the cake without looking at it.
0: Yeah, exactly. If they if they don't look go to that link, uh, then that's just ridiculous, you know. <laughs> it is hyped on cake, so.
1: Yeah, your your kind of your open rate's probably going to be basically a hundred percent because like they they're going to have no option other to, and then almost everyone is going to at least go to the link. And so, what is that link? Is it like um, what kind of is a call to action? Like, what is the next step once you get in front of these decision makers?
0: Yeah, so the, the big thing that we generally try to, like, the mentality you gotta think about with this is that it's, you're not trying to make the sale when you do outreach like this. You're not trying to just give them all of the information. Your goal is to get them on a phone call, which is then where you actually make the sale. Um, so with this, I mean, you're, you're just trying to give them enough information. You're trying to talk about their business and their needs. Um, and get them intrigued enough to where they'll actually get on a phone call with you. Like that is the goal. And too many companies try to, you know, they want to go throw it all out there. That's actually some of the mistakes I've made early on in this, versus just kind of giving them the basics, creating enough interest, and then the call to action basically saying like let's get on a phone call and talk more. Um, so that's kind of the goal within the mindset that you have as you create these. Is It's not to throw everything out there. It's to create something that's enough intrigued to get them on a phone call.
1: I listened to a few other podcasts you on, and I know you've talked a little bit about some of the campaigns, and others you can't talk too much about. So, so can we um, talk a little bit about the the campaign, one of the campaigns you ran for when you started up on Creative, uh, the one you sent to to Keith?
0: Yeah, is that one you're
1: able to talk about a little
0: bit? Yeah, yeah. So that was one um, again, a client that I wanted to work with um, had some like. Basically, met this guy over a podcast interview but didn't really know him at all and that well or hadn't talked to him in a few months. So his agency is actually based in Japan. And so what we did is we actually uh, – I got a message in a bottle. And uh, I put a little like, – I got a bottle, put a little note inside of it that said, hey, Keith, go to – and then there was a URL and sent that all the way to Japan. And he got that in the mail uh, over in Japan. And when he went there, it was like the police music video was how it started. Um, And so it was like sending out an SOS, that like really cheesy, terrible song. And then basically like about 30 seconds into it, uh, you know, they got the I hope that someone gets my. And then I basically cut from the music video into me singing message in a bottle (laughs) Uh, and like just really over the top cheesy um, and then basically went into my like kind of pitch for him. Um, but he absolutely loved it, got a ridiculously like vibrant response from it. Um, it was just super excited and led to him becoming a customer.
1: I used to think I was fairly witty until I kind of heard some of these examples you've given. And I know I have no chance of kind of creating something like this. So say I'm a really boring, uncreative digital agency owner. And I want you to help me create these types of campaigns. What would that process be like if if someone comes to you and wants your help to do this? How do you kind of start a campaign from scratch for them?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it it goes through a process of basically starting with uh, discovery and learning everything we can about them and their business um, and their target customers, getting into the head and the psychology of it. And uh, a lot of times the biggest struggle that I actually start with with agency owners is also figuring out. Who their target customer is for these because, again, the more specific you can get with it, um, the more you can customize and custom tailor the campaign. So, again, it starts with a lot of discovery and then basically I go off and I do a brainstorming session. For people that do want to try to do this on their own, there is a good um, blog post on my site called How to Create an Effective Sales and Marketing Strategy um, where I actually outline the entire process. And so I actually have like a mind map process that I go through to kind of create these strategies. Um, And so for the person who thinks they're not super creative, I don't just pull these out of thin air. There is kind of a a process behind it as well. So, yeah, I kind of go through that whole process, brainstorm everything, lay all my ideas and thoughts out there, um, and then basically we kind of refine that brainstorming document. We say, this is our ideas we like. These are true to our brand. We kind of build off of that, and then until we basically have a refined, actual executable plan. Um, So that whole kind of process of actually building these plans, getting all the ideas, and building the whole process of what this outreach is going to look like, I kind of do as a standalone service. And I also have a retainer service for companies where I actually then do all the execution um, and run these plans for them and everything.
1: Oh, okay. So it's a two-part thing. There's first sort of the... Onboarding and the setup, and then there's one saying like, "All right, I can just run this for you from here on out for X dollars a month."
0: Yeah, yes, yeah. So that's kind of the, the model with it because again, I have some agencies that they just can't budget to bring me on monthly to run this, and I, you know, that's definitely understand, but I still love to serve them. So I kind of just take them through the the onboarding and the brainstorming, and the it's called the outbound strategy power up process, where we just kind of make a roadmap for them. Um, and then I have the retainer clients that are generally the bigger companies. They do a budget for this and they realize it's not worth their time to try to execute this all because uh, it is a lot of work to put all these kind of campaigns together. So,
1: How would you kind of describe your ideal client? Like how big do their deals need to be on average and sort of what stage should they be at for this? Something like this would be worth it for them.
0: So, I mean, I think outbound can work really at any level, but I would say the bigger the deal is, the more it makes sense. You know, generally, when your deals are going twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars, and up, then you can start to get a little creative and spend more to acquire a customer. Um, I have a lot of companies that come to me, and their you know deal sizes—if it's ten thousand dollars or less—it becomes, it becomes very hard to do this kind of outbound, this kind of creative outbound, and still make it cost effective, unless you do something that's very low cost to mail. Um, just because, again, you have to realize if you if you have a hit rate of close rate of actually one out of 10, again, you can get a lot of responses, but if you only close one out of 10, um, then you've got to, you know, multiply the cost of that package times 10 to get one client. You know, the bigger the deals you're doing, the better, but I would say $10,000 is absolute minimum to start looking at this kind of method. And if you're not at that level, then the real steps are before looking at this kind of method, figuring out how you can get the lifetime value of your customer higher um, before you start looking at this kind of stuff. But if you're, $10,000, $20,000, $10,000, $20,000, um, you know, or I've even have some customers where they're, you know, $200,000 lifetime value where they can afford to spend a lot and makes a lot of sense to go these kind of creative outreach approaches.
1: Yeah, and one other thing I think that kind of goes hand in hand with that is back to sort of the, the Dream 100 or however many kind of ideal best customers is that when you narrow it down to focusing on sort of a, a handful of your best customers – those are the ones that are going to be paying you the most, and so I'm assuming a lot of people that start doing these campaigns, it probably increases their average deal size because they're going after some of those handful of clients that really could make a difference to their agency.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's the that's the, one of the ideas, and this is again Chet Holmes' uh, mentality here that the you know the quote i put out there is that you know while you're doing everything else, all the marketing, all the other sales efforts you have, you should have a dream client campaign. That is going after these really big deals. So generally, this kind of stuff, it can take a lot longer to turn around into a deal. So it's definitely not something you want to do when you need a deal tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so you want to have the, the cash flow. You want to have the bandwidth to keep going. And you want to have other lead sources coming in for you. You know, this is not like a silver bullet. But what this is, is, you know, you're getting all these referrals. You're getting inbound leads. You're getting these other things that are kind of okay. But you're like, these are the clients we really, really want. And that's what you use this for is to go toward the bigger deals and the specific types of clients that you really want to work with.
1: Okay. And so if someone hires you and you're on retainer, how how turnkey is the process for them?
0: I mean, it's pretty well processed out. Uh, it's you know There are things that they have to do on their end, especially the first month is always a little bit more investment from uh, the client's end. Um, or the agencies in because they have to kind of work with us to create some assets, build a plan, and there 's just a lot of decisions in that first month where we kind of onboard customers, um, but after that, it gets down to really only um, a few hours a month for co- companies, and then we 're basically running these campaigns consistently for them in the background, so that basically every month you know generally we, we put it at ten clients per month that we add to the to the pipeline um, and so basically after that first month, we just have ten of these going out every single month. You know, they're checking in on weekly calls to just kind of, you know, approve prospects, make sure they're happy with everything. Um, But other than that, it basically gets down to uh, a lot less time and effort on their end.
1: So in, in the not even long run, but after a few months, once you guys have things kind of figured out on both ends, it's really just them getting on the sales calls that you guys are delivering to them.
0: Yeah, at that point, you know the the way we structure a model is that we're prospectors. Uh, this is some Aaron Ross mentality here, uh, who was another guest on my podcast recently and a great guy on outbound marketing. But his whole philosophy on sales is you should specialize your sales roles, um, and that your prospectors sh- should be separate from your closers, um, because the people that are closing the deals, you know, you don't want them at going back and forth between hunting for work and then trying to ma- handle their existing clients. So what we really do is we go out and we prospect for companies. And then we hand them off deals, or we get those conversations started so that they can close them.
1: Well, it's almost the same like mentality where of why someone would work with an agent, uh, an agency like yours, instead of trying to do it in house. Because it's like, say you're just a, a standard, generic digital agency. You're full service. You do PPC, you do web design, all that stuff. You don't specialize in, in direct mail. You don't specialize in creating all these things. Like while you could do it. You're not going to get an RO, much of an ROI doing that. Your hours are better spent delivering what you're trained and what you're specializing in. And that was a big thing like with Aaron Ross with predictable revenue was like, no, your sales guys shouldn't be doing literally every step of the sales process because they're very distinct phases and they each take different skills.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, this – okay, this is kind of specific to agency owners, but this is probably – the biggest mistake, and I try to get so many agency owners to read Aaron Ross because of this, it is so common that you have a CEO of an agency that they're like the salesperson, they're going out, they're hunting all the deals. The agency has gotten up to 10 people or a million in revenue, and it's because they have you know made all the sales themselves. And they can get that far. But to grow beyond a million in revenue, um, to get much further than that, it's very hard for the CEO to still be doing all the selling. It can happen, but it takes some other things to work out. So the most common mistake I see at this point is CEOs would say, okay, we need to get someone in for sales. And so they want to bring someone in who basically can just prospect, hunt for deals, and close them and everything um, you know for the company because they want to remove themselves from sales. And this is like the biggest mistake I see agency owners making is that they think that they can just – Bring in a sales rep who's going to become up to speed on their company, which agencies and consulting are complicated things to sell. You know, it's not like a product where you can just learn it really quickly. It's generally like involves, um, demonstrating expertise. It involves like customized proposals in a lot of cases. So it's like a very complicated thing to sell. So like they try to bring someone in and that often these sales reps fail because they try to have them take the whole process on. Versus the other flip side of that is you hire on a sales rep or you bring on a prospecting or marketing company who brings deals to you, brings opportunities that you then close and suddenly your leverage as the CEO goes much further because you're just closing deals, you're not hunting them for them anymore.
1: Closing the deals, like you were saying, the proposals and all of the things that go around that do require a lot of expertise and especially as deals get larger. Having a CEO make those closes is going to usually be more effective. But they don't necessarily need to be doing – not the grunt work, but they don't need to be going out and doing all the prospecting themselves. It's not the best use of their time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when like the CEOs are fed up and there's just too much of it, yeah, if they can just get people doing that prospecting for them, um, again, it's just kind of like – it's going to free up a ton of time on them so they can focus on other things in their business. Um, but, you know – it, it frees up one half of the sales process at a time versus trying to hand over sales, which is pretty important, uh, all at once to someone else. So it's just a much safer, easier route to go as you start to try to grow and uh, systematize your sales process.
1: Right. And so I'm sure for your outbound creative campaigns, there's a ton of research that goes into the prospecting. So have you developed sort of a, a process yourself to to help do that more efficiently? Like, How do you guys approach just going out in the world and finding these prospects.
0: Yeah. So when I had my, my video agency years ago, we, you know, we leveraged one of our part time employees or one of our full time employees to do this when he wasn't busy. Um, and it took quite a while just because we had no real process on it and we didn't quite know what we were looking for. Um, but now with Outbound, what I've actually done is I've built, uh, basically like a research template and a whole process. Um, and I've got researchers and, uh, one of my team members who basically leads it to where basically, I put together a list of companies we want to go after. I write out, these are the kind of decision makers we want to get in front of. And then these are special requests that we're looking for. So maybe it's that they're hiring for a role or they put out a press release that said something about, you know, their mobile initiatives or, you know, basically we kind of create a brief and then I have these researchers now um, who can go through this process and basically find all that information and then prepare that in a report for us and our clients um, so that way it's just a much more systematized process. And we've now turned this into a side business that we're calling prospect scout, where we basically, uh, do these research reports for companies so that the sales reps don't have to spend all their time researching them all on their own.
1: It's prospect Correct. Yep. Yep. And so I'm checking out the site and, um, you have a sample research report there for, uh, Airbnb. And so obviously, I'm assuming most people are familiar with that, but when you go through it, it's like what sort of data is important to have in in these reports, and why would that be necessary for kind of uh, the salespeople to follow up on?
0: Yeah, so for this one, we were looking at um, kind of as a mobile advertising network was basically um, the one. So this was actually one that we originally did for one of the mobile growth agencies that I'm working with. Um, and basically, so, you know, we looked at, you know, who are the people in charge of media buying? You know, who are the people that are in charge of pay-per-click and mobile advertising? So we figured out, first of all, who those decision makers were um, based off of kind of that general broad description of um, looking at that. And then we also looked for other press releases relating to um, any of their mobile initiatives, any of their growth initiatives, their plans for the future, just so we can get kind of an idea of what they're, what's important to them and everything in the future and then on top of that all of kind of like the baseline research of just things like their social media which can be really useful we look through that um or any blog posts for instance we found that the guy in charge of marketing here is an active blogger and speaker and so he has all these interviews with him where you can basically learn about this guy's mentality on marketing that you're about to try to sell to which is pretty useful so <laughs>
1: <laughs> right and uh, no and so I see how that kind of fits in with the whole uh predictable revenue mindset where it's like split Splitting the tasks into kind of clearly defined areas and then optimizing those areas without trying to combine them all with one approach.
0: Yep, exactly. Because yeah, if you if you if you try to do this research yourself, um, or really to do any sort of effective outreach like this, you have to research your customers. You can't just blanket it blindly out there, or otherwise you get into that kind of three D mail kind of spammy approach. So to do this effective, you need to do that research so you know about your customers. Um, Jill Conrath is another great author who speaks about this all the time, basically saying that researching your customers all the time you put in before you actually reach out to them is the most important time, uh, is more important the success than the actual conversations get going because otherwise, if you never get past that first door, if you never actually you know, get in conversations with them because you just send a blanketed spammy email or something, um, then it's just not going to, it's not worth the time.
1: Right, and I mean, going back, it's like, it's almost like for an email, like if your subject line sucks and doesn't get read, it doesn't matter how great your your email is. And like with Outbound Creative, like if you just send a generic letter or a generic anything and doesn't get read, it doesn't matter. But if you can, the Outbound Creative stuff really does help Get opens. It helps start those conversations.
0: Yeah. So it all it all goes back. If you want to get someone's attention, stand out and be unique, um, and also be personal. Uh, and the best way to do that is to really just know as much as you can about your prospects before you reach out, and then do something eye catching and personalized and relevant to them.
1: Yeah. And so to get back to the to Albon creative a bit and the, the campaigns themselves, I know for email for cold email for basically any type of email following up is crucial to success like even just for this interview like you're a busy guy and so we had to like we moved around the time in a little bit and it's like there's always things going on so it's important to follow up make sure we we get through and it's people always think like oh if i don't get a response it's this person doesn't like me or this and that which isn't the case people are just busy but how does that apply to outbound creative like if you just send the book is that is that the only kind of touch you make with the prospect or how does that work
0: yeah so again with like in the power up strategy we actually define all of the follow-up plans um, from the get-go so the the, there is that initial package and then we also that's kind of the wow package and most of the time um, hopefully the campaign stops there because we get into um, conversation but again we always obviously after that do digital follow-up through email sometimes through social media Um, we've actually had success doing Instagram video messages before you know and then from there you know we have the digital follow up and then we actually do other physical follow ups as well a lot of times we'll get a response from someone but we can't get a phone call and they are they just kind of like oh it was interesting and then they just kind of drop off what we'll do is we'll just keep sending them things so for instance we'll uh, we've sent like candy as follow ups on like the cake campaigns um, we have sent those little, uh, one of the things, have you seen those little e cards with like the solid color and like the witty little statements?
1: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so
0: I've used those a decent amount and I've just emailed those to people. There's one that says, I haven't heard from you lately, so I'm assuming you're busy, flaky, or dead. Uh, <laughs> and I have gotten responses multiple times by sending people that just to, like in an email and, uh, we're gonna actually do some physical versions of that as well. But yeah, it's again, so you're following up, still trying to get stuff to stand out, um, Again, Chet Holmes has a lot of really good stuff for this in The Ultimate Sales Machine where he really talks about you know just having – planning to follow up 12 times before you give up. Um, and again, that people like – and I, even my clients, like I try to keep hammering this into them and they want to give up if they don't get a response or like a great response after the first outreach. But if you get a response or something that indicates, hey, these guys actually probably aren't a good client or it's not worth it, then you can kind of give up. But if in your head you still believe that they have the ability to be one, like a great client for you and you can provide great value, then you just keep staying on top of them. I've had a client that I literally got on the phone on Friday and I've been pursuing these guys for like three months. Um, but it could be a massive deal, so it's worth it.
1: It's the same principle of why like, the, the dream client campaigns work is because they're truly clients that can change your business, that can change the growth of your company if you land those deals. And so those… Are worth sending follow ups and being persistent and making sure you don't stop until you actually get a no, because once you land them, the rewards are more than worth it.
0: Okay, and then on that, I would I would say even like even if you get a no, that does not just go away. Like you know this uh, the thing this is the other thing that I tell people like all oh, we go through all my clients we have this exercise before we start um, where basically we say hey okay what are all the objections that someone can give us. Um, because a lot of times people, like these, you gotta, again, Jill Conrath talks about this a ton, but these people are really busy. They don't have time. They have so much on their plate. They're already working too many hours. So, like, for you to get any time in their schedule, you've gotta really prove that you're gonna provide them value and make it worth it. People will come and they'll just have objections because they just don't wanna deal with you. They're like, they're fine with the status quo, even if you can provide them value. So, you've gotta, like, sit there and think, okay, Maybe they are going to say, "Okay, we only work with companies in-house. We don't hire agencies for this." That's like a very common objection that agencies get. Uh, maybe they'll say, "Oh, we don't have budget for this, or oh, that's just not a current priority for us." Uh, let's talk again in a couple months. And so you've just got to like think about what those objections are and how to overcome them. You know, you don't you want to still be respectful to the clients um, and not like annoy them if they're trying to like put you off. Yeah, you just got to kind of be prepared for that because a lot of times, especially with outbound stuff, people are just, they don't want to let someone else into their already busy schedule. So they're going to immediately put you off with something. So you need to have a plan for when you do get some sort of objection like that.
1: I mean, a sales 101 is overcoming objections and it's, you're right, is that a no is not usually a flat out no. It's someone just doesn't want to deal with you or there's a lot going on. They just haven't the had time to think about it. A no should be explored and you should try to kind of come up with ways around that everything Jake talks about makes a ton of sense and I can easily see how this could really help take an agency to the next level but it's a lot to keep track of especially when you have to actually run the agency we're going to take a quick commercial break right now but when we come back Jake is going to share the system he uses to make this process run smoothly hang tight we'll be right back the Agency Advantage Podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Now, Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or on the back of napkins or whatever else you're using and start getting the insights into how your team is actually spending their time that only screenshots and in-depth reports can give you. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without all the crazy fees – where they really find the true value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with a project management tool to see what tasks are taking up their team's time. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I do want to warn you, though, there's a good chance once you see this data, you're going to be sick when you realize how little time is spent actually delivering the project itself. But you can't set up the procedures to make your agency more efficient if you're just guessing where time is being spent. So give Hubstaff a try so you can stop guessing and start streamlining your agency. Head over to hubstaff.com today and sign up for a free, no credit card required, 14-day trial and get your agency back on track. All right. Now back to Jake. And so for personal emails when I'm sending them, if I need a reminder to follow up with this person or whatever, I'll just use Boomerang, which is like a Gmail extension. It will remind me. Or for our email marketing with Drip, it just is automatic. Like If, it, if they don't reply, send a follow-up. But for this, where there's so many moving pieces in a campaign, how do you guys stay on top of it all? Like how do you kind of internally manage these campaigns?
0: We do. We use kind of two main tools for it. One is Trello, um, where we actually kind of have a card for each prospect that we're going after. And then we have the Google Doc, which is like a research, all the research on the client that's linked to that card. Um, and then we basically move them through a whole flow as we, like, prepare the packages, as we then send those packages out, um, and then as we start to get responses. Um, so that's kind of our high level of, like, where the prospect is in this entire flow. And then from there, we also have um, – use Streak to kind of handle reminders because uh, streak's is a great way to kind of just uh, – I don't know if you've ever used it. It's a simple CRM plugin. But you can do reminders with that and uh, just have that in your inbox. So especially once I get someone in conversations um, or I get a response from an email, I start to do streak reminders. And I just – I have the habit now that basically anytime I touch a prospect uh, in email, I always set a reminder for like a week out to just check back in on the status. You know, like did they respond? You know, a boomerang's a good one for if they don't respond, it kind of reminds you. Uh, but I basically do these so I'm just always following up in some way or another as well. So.
1: All of this happens behind the scenes for the client, or are they like the Trello board, like the moving along from one step to the next? Is that kind of solely your domain, or are there parts where they need to kind of jump in and, and assist?
0: Uh, it depends, and we have kind of two models and ways we work with it. Um, sometimes we actually take on the face of a sales rep for the company. Okay. Um, and in those cases, we handle even more of it. Um, in other cases, we make it look like it's coming from you know the CEO or the salesperson at the company. Um, and in those cases, we basically kind of send them emails reminding them that you need to follow up now. You need to follow up on these days with these people. Uh, and here's the kind of message you want to send them. So
1: I right, know that's smart because that's one of the biggest things that I've found, even with very simple, just one medium campaigns, like with just email or something like that. It's like just having a process so that you don't forget is probably the most important part because it's like I'll send an email and then three hours later, you might have forgot you've done that. And so just having it like pop up immediately when it, something needs to be done is so huge on actually following through.
0: Yeah, having those systems in place is essential. Uh, having something there that's going to remind you those are absolutely essential systems to making this all work.
1: Outbound Creative is very new, but you've been doing well. Like, when did you officially launch?
0: Uh, we officially launched, uh, I guess, July of last year. Um, so, yeah, again, it, it's built off the, all the techniques I used when I had my agency, but officially launched this as a service in uh, July of last year.
1: Oh, wow. And then you're remote, correct? Where are you? You're in Costa Rica right now?
0: Yeah. So if you've heard any background noise in this interview, <laughs> it's because I am in uh, a laundry room in Costa Rica where I plug in for podcast interviews um, because I get better better receptivity here so it doesn't drop out when I'm plugged in. Uh, But the maid has been coming in and out and doing laundry during this interview. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm currently down in Costa Rica. I have a full-time employee in Colorado Springs uh, who does all the physical mailing and everything. Uh, But, yeah, travel all around while doing this.
1: Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask is how do you manage a business that has a physical component while you travel?
0: Yeah, so, again, I've got an employee there who has – has a kid. He's buying a house. He is, you know, he loves the freedom of working from home and being with his kid. But uh, he doesn't have the desire to go travel all over the world. Um, so that balance works out great. He still gets the freedom of working from home, but he's able to do all the physical mail and everything, and all those pieces of this.
1: Hmm. And I also saw the a few months ago. At least you were hiring an SDR, correct? A Sales development rep, or you're hiring someone to help with sales, is that right?
0: Yeah, so I've got uh three people bringing on at the start of next month to help build up Prospect Scout and Outbound Creative. So, um, yeah, getting ready to expand the sales team, which is exciting.
1: Yeah, so what has that process been like for you?
0: Uh, we'll see. Uh, it starts, <laughs> uh, it'll be starting March 1st where we add some people into it, so it's um. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I've uh haven't had as much experience managing other sales team or managing a whole team of salespeople, but have some good mentors and feel ready to to make that jump.
1: Yeah, who who are the mentors if you don't mind mentioning them?
0: Uh so it's not any like one specific like famous online bloggers or anything. It's uh I've got a handful of um Mentors who are just very, uh, very successful and experienced in the sales industry, working at companies like Dell, and one guy was even selling aircrafts for a while. So uh, their experiences and everything, leading sales teams, uh, I get them on the call every now and then, and they give me advice and feedback on stuff. So uh, for
1: me, on the sales side, like email and like text-based things are way easier. But it's like the actual sales part of the the conversation, the actual closing, and all of those, I feel like is such a special skill set and then managing other people and doing that. I feel like you, you can obviously learn as you go, but people, there are people that have been doing it for so long and, and done it so well that having someone kind of help you along that process must be huge and giving you a leg up on that.
0: Yeah. So that's why I'm always trying to learn from people better than me and, Always teaching it back as well. I mean, even with my clients that we're doing, is it almost also becomes like a sales consultant slash mentorship role with a lot of this as well, um, because the way I structure my deals, it's like a cash based and a sales commission incentive. So I want them to close deals. So uh, in a lot of these situations, I'm actually kind of mentoring and teaching uh, my clients how to improve their sales process as well. So um, yeah, but it's it's absolutely essential to. Learn from someone in sales. Books can go a long way, but getting someone who's done it on the phone goes a really, really long way as well to just learning from them and, and understanding you know, what's been successful for them or they can point you to the few key things that really actually make a difference versus all the stuff that doesn't matter that you get hung right. up on.
1: I keep going back to like the Dream 100, but the same sort of the Pareto principles, like the, the 20% of actions that get 80% of results. And it's like anything you do in life, pretty much like any skill you're learning There is some kind of shortcut there. There is some 20% that you could do that would get you almost all the way there. Whether in a sport, if it's just learning a few different things, like, or just anything, it's like, in, in talking to people who have done it before, can usually, you can kind of distill down what those shortcuts are to at least get you on the right track.
0: Yeah. So, uh, just give you an example. Like one of the things that just stuck out to me the most, one of the first, um, calls I had with my sales mentor, he told me a simple thing. He said that, you know, activities, activity creates deals, which create revenue. And that's like such a simple thing. Um, But a lot of times when people are like, oh, we don't have sales, like what's going on? You just got to look at the top of it, that if you have enough activity, things that are trying to create deals, you have enough marketing activities, you're you're reaching out to enough companies, you're doing enough activity up there, that leads to deals, which then eventually leads to revenue. And just trying to remember that uh, it's just a kind of always thing of saying, Hey, sales are slowing down. What's going on? And you're like, Oh yeah, we're not as active on our outbound prospecting or content marketing or, um, the, you know, what the stuff, the activities we're doing aren't working. So yeah, it's just like a very simple process. But again, it's just a simple thing that I think for someone, um, as you're learning and getting better at sales, something to always keep in mind, the more activity you do on the top end of the funnel is going to lead to more work at the bottom end.
1: So I'm trying to find this book right now that I just read. Um, It's on prospecting, and it's basically said the same thing you did, but they took it a different way. Let me – one second. Fanatical Prospecting by Jeb Blunt, and it's like he said the same thing. It's like the reason deals dry up or the reason kind of deal flow dries up is a lot of times people are like, oh, we haven't been doing any prospecting. And so I agree with him and you on that part, but then he goes in a different direction where he's like – that means the sales reps need to start doing more prospecting. And I'm like, well, no, like you probably just need to have a separate process in place to make sure you're continuously doing that. But it is like a good point. If you need to start, look at the whole funnel and, and when you break it kind of down into those distinct steps, you, you lose a lot of the noise that can distract you from figuring out what the actual problem is.
0: Yeah. Like one of the biggest ways to uh, create actual kind of predictable growth um, or predictable sales for an agency I guess I'll say the the biggest mistake that agencies make is they do a bunch of sales, they get work, they go do work, and they quit prospecting. And then, like, they come back. So, like, the the biggest thing that agencies can do is just get to a point where they say, hey, every month we're going to send out 10 packages or every month we're going to do X no matter what. We will make this happen. And just starting to do kind of consistent things on a monthly basis to put new funnels and leads into your pipeline is probably the most effective thing you can do for growth uh, for your agency.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point, but it's like it deserves like emphasizing even more because it's something that a lot of business people, agency owners, whoever they know that. But then when you're doing all the client work, it's time to, it's hard to find the time to actually implement it. But it's like, you need to almost work the other way around and schedule that those prospecting tasks first and then fit in everything around that. Because if you don't have that steady kind of top of funnel um, sales activities coming in, then you're going to be just going through the feast or famine cycle over and over again.
0: Yeah. And so the, I mean, the way that I've gotten around that or the way that I've handled that with my own business um, for years now is basically in the morning I wake up and I work for about an hour or two on my business first And then I go into client work. And then I go into the companies that I'm working with and everything. Um, But by getting up early, doing that first, you guarantee that it gets done. Um, And occasionally, yeah, client work will get too crazy. You have to wake up and do a little client work in the morning. But you're you're never going to have energy to do your own internal stuff at the end of a day. But when you have a client deadline that's got to get done, you'll finish that up at the end of the day because you have to for a client. It's so much easier to just shove off your... Uh, internal stuff and be like, oh, I I just want to tap out now. Um, Versus, you know, when it's your your client stuff, you've got to get it done. So that's my advice. Just do your own marketing and prospecting first thing in the morning.
1: Yeah, and that really applies to anything. Like, make it a priority to do the things that have the most leverage on whatever it is that you're working on so that even if you don't accomplish anything else, you still made real progress. And so for an agency, like, your client work needs to get done. So while you might be putting in a few late nights, you're not going to just completely blow it off like you might with your internal project. So no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Yeah. You haven't even been around a full year yet with Outbound Creative, but it's changed a ton. You're, you're hiring. You're expanding. What does the future look like for Outbound Creative?
0: Yeah. So uh, figuring that out right now as we kind of add and expand the sales team. Um, most likely, I'm going to begin to elevate and work with larger companies, and uh, you know, ultimately, what I've realized is this is, you know, we're doing highly personal outreach. So, trying to scale this and make it to where we're working with 20 clients a month, uh, that would kind of like defeat the purpose because then it would get down to like not personalized. You know, for us, you know, our, our growth with Outbound Creative is going to be in you know the types and the size of companies that we work with. Um, And also in the sales commissions that we generate from our clients. Um, You know, when we get clients that we're producing results for, that means we get more sales commissions. And uh, that's definitely a growth channel for us as well and gives us more leverage for our time. Um, And so ultimately, we look for clients like that where we can generate sales for them. And we know we can make commissions because that's a win-win for both of us. That means the relationship is working. So that's kind of one of the, I guess, the big areas for growth is bigger clients and better clients that we know we can produce for. Um, and then Prospect Scout is becoming its own side business as well because it's kind of more of a productized service. Um, so it doesn't involve consulting versus Outbound Creative is kind of a heavily built on me consulting and the, the sales, um, other strategists that I bring on. But Prospect Scout is something that is more of a productized service where, um, it takes, it's something that could very much easier run without me. So that's kind of a, a product that I'm building up at the same time.
1: Right. And so with, with Outbound Creative, I, I like what you said is that you're going to kind of scale by having bigger deals instead of more deals. Whereas with Prospect Scout, that can kind of scale out easier because it's something that's, you've pretty well systematized.
0: Yep. Yeah. So two different kind of business avenues here. Uh, highly likely that one of them will show more promise than the other within a year. But, um, given them both, you know, Um, a good run right now and actually using outbound creative methods to win clients for prospect scouts. So, um, yeah.
1: (laughs) Nice. And so I know that having some lifestyle independence, some, some freedom to, to travel to those things is important to you. So what does success actually look like to you? Like what would make you say like, all right, this is what I wanted.
0: So for years I always thought it was being some big kind of famous author or having a huge following or something like that. And ultimately that is not important anymore one of the greatest uh, I guess, examples is when I interviewed Aaron Ross on my podcast, he has nine kids and he works 20 to 30 hours a week and he's been able to significantly grow his income and his lifestyle while still only working 20 to 30 hours a week. I guess when you would look at you know, why I'm building this, you know, when I, so the purpose that we have for our company and this whole both companies that I'm creating when we did, kind of did our values and our purpose is that it's really about freedom, uh, about freedom for us as team members Uh, freedom for our clients by generating them more sales and saving them more time. And then also, you know, freedom for, um, myself as well. And so that's kind of my goal is really I I aim to build companies that can generate a good income that don't need a significant time investment for me. Um, so that I can really get to a point where I can work 20 to 30 hours a week and have the rest of the time to really do personal projects, work on other things, and also travel. So that's, um, you know, where I'm, where I'm aiming to kind of go with all of this.
1: Nice. No, I think that makes perfect sense because a lot of times people will sort of just default into I want to get as big as I can and make as much money as I can without taking a step back and being like, wait, is that really what I want? And a lot of times when they do take that step back, is closer in line with what you're saying is a true work-life balance where it's like grow to what you can, optimize everything so you're being efficient, but use that extra time to kind of live life the way that lets you enjoy life.
0: Yeah, and so uh, this is uh, further explain like Aaron Ross's point, but he's grown his income over the course of seven years from $60,000 to over $800,000 of personal income while still maintaining 20, 30 hours a week. And when I asked him about this, I was like, how did you grow this and you know still maintain that balance, not work a ton of hours or work more? And he said, "You know, basically, I've got these kids and I just decided that I'm going to only work 20 and 30 hours a week. And I'm going to figure out how to make this work. I'm going to figure out how to grow my income and grow a business. And I'm just going to have that be the constraints because I'm going to be a good dad to my kids. Um, And that was just like a mind blowing thing where he basically just (laughs) says like, you know, I just, I'm, if, if it's, if it's, if the work is requiring me to work more than 30 hours a week, then I'm doing something wrong. And then like, then I've got to reevaluate what's going on here. Um, And so I've been consistently doing that myself as well. And, there was a period at this start where I was working 60 plus hours a week sometimes and I've now gotten it down to 40. And if I hit any, any, any weeks where I'm like, I've got to work in the evening to finish up something for a client, I'm like, okay, why is this happening? Why am I working extra? And I start to think about that and what I need to fix to make sure that that does not continue to happen.
1: Right. It's almost changing what you consider like the default rules. It's instead of saying like, I'm going to work and, until everything gets done. You're going to say, like, all right, these are the constraints of time. I, I can work. How do I get everything done within that time and still achieve my goals?
0: Yeah, it's uh, yeah, just giving yourself that constraint and sticking to it. It's it's a, a powerful thing, and it's a weird thing for many entrepreneurs who haven't done this before. And have always defaulted to just working more hours. So, uh, <laughs> takes a little getting used to.
1: No, and because that's definitely always been sort of my approach. And one of my good friends is has a finance background worked at a hedge fund. And it's like the default is like, Oh, like I'll just work more. I'll just get it done. Like instead of like saying no to things or picking and choosing what projects could have the biggest impact is just trying to do all of it. And usually it doesn't work out that well.
0: Yep. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I'm kind of nervous writing these show notes because there's going to be so much to cover about sales, about, about all of this, but uh, excited at the same time. But so to kind of wrap things up a little bit, um, if you were talking to an agency owner who doesn't necessarily have the budget to, to hire you but wants to still experiment with this on their own, how would you suggest for them to kind of get their feet wet with some outbound marketing?
0: Yeah, so um, there is a newsletter on outboundcreative.com. If you go down to the contact form, there's a little link to a newsletter where I actually kind of walk through a process there. Um, and that, so that's kind of a, definitely a starting point that will help give you some information if you don't have the money or you want to try to do this on your own. Another thing is just I have also had this blog post on my site on building an effective sales and marketing strategy. But ultimately, like all those boil down to a simple idea of that if you want to get someone's attention, stand out, be unique, and be authentic, and really kind of put yourself in the shoes of them and their business. And if you can do that, it goes a really, really long way.
1: I think that's a perfect summary. So Jake, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. I know you're busy and you kind of We're still trying to maintain that work-life balance, so I appreciate you taking the time to come on.
0: No problem. Well, thank you for having me on, Andy.
1: Thanks. I like this episode came right after my interview with Robert Williamson Workshop because there's a ton of overlap here with what Rob talked about with cold email. While blasting everybody with the same email or letter can and does get results, it turns into purely a numbers game where you need to contact thousands of people for the hope of just getting one of them to write you back. The way to make any outbound campaign work is to truly cater your message to an audience of one. Whether it's a subject line that shows you did your research or a really cool package that your prospect can't resist opening, your first goal is to stand out from everybody else. And to do that, you need to do your research up front. If you fail here, it doesn't matter how good your pitch is because it'll never be heard. Do your research up front. Then, once you have their attention, you need to keep it by focusing on how you can help them. Don't talk about your awards or your portfolio. Just focus on them and their business and their needs. You're not selling at this point. You're just trying to get them on the phone. Once you do get them on a call, then you rely on your typical sales process to move them from prospect to client. The major theme I keep seeing from all my guests who talk about this is that to stand out from the noise, you need to be unique. And the easiest way to be unique is to do your research and focus on your prospects and their needs. If you can repeatedly do that, your agency will grow. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and head over to iTunes to leave a review. Reviews really help our rankings and help us reach a wider audience. So if you could spare a minute to do that, I'd really appreciate it. Next week, I'll be back with Marcus Blankenship, who will answer the question of when it's time to hire an employee, as well as how to prepare for that so you don't blow it like most agencies do. Talk to you then. See ya.